So it's Acts 16, 11 to 15. I'm going to back up just a little bit to get some context. If you remember where we were at last week, the Apostle Paul went out on his second missionary journey, and he was going into one area uh, in Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit told him, no, don't go here, don't stop there. He thought, well, then I'll go north into Bithynia, but it says the Spirit of Jesus kept him from going there as well. So then he headed west because he ended up with a vision. I want to back it up to uh, verse 9 where he talks about this vision he had. It says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over here to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen this vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called him to preach the gospel to them. And so, so here's our text. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where, there was supposed, where we supposed there would be a place for us to pray. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, with the goal of driving back the Germans and eventually liberating all of Europe from the clutches of Hitler. Dubbed Operation Overlord, DA, the D-Day invasion was the greatest amphibious assault in military history. Now, the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, had been pressuring the British and the Americans to open a second front in Europe. Churchill wanted to bring the attack up through the south in Italy, what he called the soft underbelly uh, of Europe. But Roosevelt agreed with the Soviets that the attack should come in France. But where in France? The Germans didn't know, so they had to defend the entire coast. Now, the Allied command uh, went to great lengths to mislead the Germans as to where the landing would occur. One attempt was at deception was pretty clever. They took the body of a man who had died of pneumonia and they uh, planted on him some quote-unquote secret plans. They dumped his body off the coast of Spain and when it floated in to the shore, it was picked up by the Spanish authorities who uh, informed Hitler that that's where the invasion was going to come. Well, when the time actually came for invasion, they did attack that area. They sent in all kinds of paratroopers who were just dummies. And so they were shooting at these dolls that were coming down, basically. Well, when the D-Day invasion occurred, it was massive as far as the equipment and the men involved. 1,200 planes, 5,000 ships and boats, and 160,000 troops. By the end of the summer, more than 2 million Allied troops had poured into France. Now, right before the invasion began, the Supreme Allied Commander General Douglas, or, uh, Dwight Eisenhower had these words read to his troops. Listen, it says, You are to, about to embark on a great crusade toward which we have striven for many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In the company of our brave allied allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves and the free world. And the elimination of tyranny, security, and freedom. That was the end goal of Operation Overlord and the D-Day invasion. But you know, as important as that invasion was, a greater invasion 
came to Europe, which happened some seven, uh, 1900 years earlier. That invasion force was much smaller, it just consisting of four men, but they were armed with an even greater weapon, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the story that we have before us today tells about the first time that the gospel reached Europe through the entry point of the city of Philippi. You remember when Jesus had met, or met Paul on the road to Damascus, he told him that he was sending him to the Gentiles to, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The liberation of pagan Europe through the preaching of the gospel, began in this city, and then over the centuries spread throughout the continent where thousands, hundreds of thousands, yea, even millions of people embraced the Christian faith. Well, it's to that event of that spiritual D-Day landing that we want to turn our attention this morning. Now, we want to think about how God worked not only in the lives of these first European converts, but how he works in the lives and hearts of people yet today. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. I pray that as I speak, Lord, you would give people ears to hear, that they would put other things out of their mind and focus on this word, because this is your word, the word of the living God. So bless us to that end, for we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to outline the sermon, you can put on four headings. The first, you can just write down a historic voyage, a, a, a historic voyage, that's 11 to 12. Second thing you can put down is another Sabbath, that's verse 13. The third thing is a rich uh, woman, a rich woman, that's 14. And the last, 15, is a grateful convert. A historic voyage. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That was a historic voyage. That Italian sea captain was financed in his commercial adventure by uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. The spices that India produced at the time were so valuable that you could purchase a whole ship for the cost of two pounds of cinnamon. The reason the spices were so expensive was because of shipping costs. It had to come 5,000 miles over land, or if you went by sea, it took about five or six months to go all the way around Africa and come back. Well, Columbus was looking for a quicker way to India, and that's why when he sailed west and he landed in the Bahamas, he referred to the people as Indians, and that's why they're called Indians today. Well, probably the second most important historical voyage from our perspective as Americans was the Mayflower, which brought 102 English Protestants from the Netherlands to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Their hope was for religious freedom. Do you know the 102? Half of them died that first winter. Well, this sea voyage was not nearly as long. It was only 150 miles, and it didn't take very long. It was only two days. But it was certainly historic because the ship was carrying a cargo far more valuable than spices. It was bringing the gospel to Europe. Now, Luke relates the event of the voyage starting in verse 11 and 12. Look what it says. So putting out from sea, to, from uh, Troas, that's a city, we ran straight, a straight course to uh, Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and there we were staying in the city for some time. Now, notice that the author Luke here does not say they ran a straight course, but we. It's evidently at this point that the gospel writer, uh, uh, Luke, joined in, to become part of this invading army. Now, they must have had the winds at their back because they made it in just two days. We're told in the return trip, it took them two weeks to accomplish it. Well, the city that they went to, Philippi, had an interesting past. The original name of the city was Crenitis, uh, uh, which means fountain. It was uh, taken by, over by Philip 
the second of Macedon, who renamed the city after himself. This is the same Philip who was the father of, uh, of uh, Alexander the Great, the world conqueror. By the way, does anyone know who his tutor was, his personal tutor? It was Aristotle, the philosopher. Well, Philippi came under Roman domination, uh, and it became a site of a famous battle. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, the armies of Brutus and Cassius, uh, who had been part of the coup plot, faced the armies of Octavian and Mark Antony. Brutus and Cassius, having lost their lives, both committed suicide. Now Luke tells us that by this time it was a Roman colony. Many retired soldiers lived there. They also had a famous medical school. They're probably the one that Luke himself had been trained in. So it was a fairly large and prosperous city, one that would serve well as a beachhead uh, for Operation Europe. Well, strangely though, it had a very small Jewish presence. We deduce that from what we see next in the text, and the one we call another Sabbath. Just another manic Monday. Wish it were Sunday. That's my fun day. My I don't have to run day, just another manic Monday. That was sung by the Bengals. Well, the Sabbath day was not supposed to be a manic day, but one for rest and worship of God. And that's why you often read about how Paul would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath to reason with the Jews from the scripture, trying to prove to them that Jesus was their promised Messiah. But here we don't read anything about a synagogue, but rather it says that on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to women who had assembled there. As I went down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear that robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down, come on, brothers, let's go down, down to the river to pray. You know, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, said that in order for a synagogue to be formed, you had to have at least 10 adult Jewish males for a quorum. The fact that they don't mention a synagogue here is probably because there wasn't enough Jews in the area to form a synagogue. You know, according to Lifeway Research, the most church city in America is Chattanooga, Tennessee. 59% of the population there go to church regularly. Those are followed by Salt Lake City, not surprising with the Mormons, Augusta, Georgia, Aiken, South Carolina, Baton Rouge, Birmingham, Jackson, Mississippi. Most of the top 10 are in the South. That's why they call it the Bible Belt. On the other side, there's some cities that have very low attendance. Places like San Francisco, not surprising. Oakland, San Jose, Reno, Nevada, Vegas, Boston, Portland. Surprisingly, Orlando, Florida made it on the list. Now, we're not told why these women assembled by the river. Perhaps it was just for lunch, but more likely it was because they were assembled to have some kind of worship service and they needed water for the ablutions, the uh, cleansings that they normally would do because of Judaism. But evidently, there weren't many assembled, uh, probably because there weren't many in the city. Now, I remember when I was at a pastor's conference a number of years ago, there was a guy that I met there who was from Sweden. And uh, he told me that he was the head of the Evangelical Reformed Church in Sweden. And I was really impressed with that. But then he pointed out to me that there was actually only one church in their denomination, and there were only about six or seven guys involved in it. Well, it's a start. It's a start. Now, not wanting to miss an opportunity to share the gospel with people, Luke tells us that they sat down beside the river and started speaking to women who were assembled there. Now, I have to tell you, the best way to do evangelism is just through personal conversations with non-Christians. 
Now, I mentioned last week that Pastor Chris got saved as a result of him listening into a conversation that I had with another coworker at a restaurant where we were both employed. Well, after that, when we worked together, we'd often talk about the Bible and about our faith. And as we did, a lot of people who were there would sit and listen in. You know, the waitresses. There was one young guy, he was a, co uh, a dishwasher. His name was Chris as well. And he would listen to us regularly. He ended up getting saved. There's a lady who was out front, uh, the manager out there. She was Jewish by background. I found out a few years later she ended up becoming a Christian. One of the guys that Chris and I worked with who couldn't stand the fact that we were talking about God, later on he became a Christian. I think there were about five or six people in that restaurant who became believers. You don't have to be a trained apologist, though it helps. You just have to tell people who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Well, that brings us to our next point, though. A rich woman. Look what it says in verse 14. We're told of a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now, some commentators wonder if this woman's actual name was Lydia or if that was just kind of a title given to her. There was an ancient kingdom of Lydia, and the city of Thyatira, where she was from, was in that region. But, you know, there are people who have names taken after places, isn't there? There's a, a mayor named London Breed. There's an actress named Dakota Fanning. How about Paris Hilton, Brooklyn Decker, Orlando Bloom? How about Al? Mr. Al Bakurki? Thank you. I knew someone would get that. <laughs> Have you ever heard that phrase, rich is Croesus? Well, Croesus was a king of ancient Lydia. He was renowned for his wealth. His kingdom was conquered by Cyrus the Great. Well, we don't think that this woman was as rich as Croesus, but evidently she had done pretty well for herself. Probably she was a widow by this time in her life, but one way or another, she was a successful businesswoman. How do we know that? Because she was the seller, it says, of purple fabrics. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but it would have meant something to the people in her day when she handed her business card to them. The actress Meryl Sleep... Uh, sleep. <laughs> uh, I don't even edit these things. It goes right up on the internet like this. <laughs> no, the actress Meryl Streep played in a movie called The Devil Wears Prada. Now, since I shop at Kohl's, I didn't know that Prada was an actual brand. So I went to their website. They have some nice leather purses for you ladies. The expensive ones are four to $5,000 each. The cheaper ones go from two to 3,000. They come out of the bargain bin. If you're a guy and you wanna buy a nice jacket, it's about $6,000. Of course, it's not a Carhartt, but it still will look good. Well, Lydia was like a Prada sales rep. The purple dye that they used was known as uh, Tyrian dye, uh, Ty Tyrian purple, which was produced by the excretion of the Merrick uh, shellfish. So my brother-in-law does maple syrup. I found out that it takes 40 gallons of sap boiled down to make one gallon of maple syrup. But you know what it took to make 1.5 grams of this purple dye? 12,000 of these shellfish. This dye was worth more than gold, silver, rubies, or even cinnamon from India. The clothes dyed with Tyrian purple were worn only by people in the highest status of society. Well, if you're selling high-end products to very wealthy people, you're gonna be making some good money on it yourself, and there's no doubt that Lydia was a very rich woman. But evidently, she had sensed that there was something missing in her life. Despite her wealth, despite her success, and probably good looks, she still had a God-sized hole in her heart. You know, my son Nathan attended the University of Chicago and graduated from there. About a quarter of the students that attend there are Jewish kids from wealthy families. At one point I asked 
Nathan to make a list of some of his Jewish friends and fellow students so I could start praying for them. And over the years, I've added a number of names of Jewish people to the list. Most of them I don't know. They're just people who are actors and actresses, politicians, economists. But I've been praying for them. But you know, Paul talked about how the gospel was supposed to go to the Jew first, but then his next line was, and also to the Greek. So on my list, titled to the Jew first, I do have one Greek person listed. Her name is Athena Onassis. She's 39 years old, and she's the granddaughter of Aristotle Onassis, the Greek shipping magnate who married Jackie Kennedy after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Now, Athena's mother, Christina, died of a heart attack when she was only 37 years old, but by that time she'd already been married and divorced four times. All of her money went to her daughter, this heiress. Her wealth is estimated to be about a billion dollars. Nothing like Bill Gates or even like Donald Trump, but, you know, it's not chump change either. I don't think she probably shops at Kohl's, <laughs> or even Prada for that matter. She bought an island for $153 million. Now, Athena's one passion is horses. She's an equestrian. She's divorced. She has no children. And I'm absolutely certain that as an unbeliever, despite all she has, she has a God-sized hole in her heart. So I'm praying that God would do for Athena, Onassis, what he did for Lydia on that Sabbath morning. Now, God must have been working in Lydia's life to some degree because it says that she was a worshiper of God. That is the equivalent of the term God-fear. It was Gentile people who had not made full conversions to Judaism, but were at least attracted to the religion. And so she was seeking in some sense that unbelievers can seek. She is putting herself in a place where she could hear the word of God. Now, folks, listen carefully. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing hearing by way of the word of Christ. If you're not saved, you need to put yourself in a place where you regularly hear the word of God with the hope that God will do for you what he did for Lydia. Opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken. All right, now we got to stop, drop our packs, and camp here for a moment. When it comes to understanding the Bible, Christians differ on a number of related issues. End times events whether we should baptize infants or not, whether the spiritual gifts are still operative. But one of the big dividing questions among Christians is this. Who ultimately determines whether a person is saved or not? Is it the individual himself? Or is it God? Now, both sides of this debate will argue that a person has to turn from their sins, repent of their sins, change their mind about them, and then believe in Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for their sins. And if you would do that, God will grant you forgiveness, free, and eternal life. They both agree on that. But the question is, when a person does that, why did they do that? Well, some people say, well, okay, they did it because they had a more tender heart than other people. Yeah, but why was their heart more tender? more open, more responsive than another person's. Where did that open heart come from? You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? According to the Bible, all of us come into this world with a congenital heart defect as a result of Adam's sin. In fact, spiritually speaking, we come into this world DOA, dead on arrival. Writing to the Corinthians or to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul reminded them of their former state. He said, This is what they're like. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, which you formerly walked in according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan, 
of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, you too formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of your flesh and your mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 1-5. Now at verse 14, notice what verse 14 does say and doesn't say. It doesn't say Lydia opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. It says the Lord opened her heart. In the Old Testament, God promised that someday he would make a new covenant, a new agreement with Israel where he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul at his conversion. He was heading to Damascus to arrest Christians. He hated Christians because he hated Christ. And yet when the risen Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he was converted. But why did he believe then? Was it because he was more tender-hearted than others? Absolutely not. He was seeking to kill Christians. Why then did he believe at that moment? It was the same reason that Lydia believed on that Sabbath day. Because the Lord opened his heart, her heart and his heart to believe. God took out Paul's heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. He put his spirit in him and caused Paul to start walking in his statutes. You know, a lot of believers struggle with and even struggle against the idea that God is the one who ultimately determines who's saved. They say, well, if, if, if God has already determined who's going to be saved, then why pray? But let's turn that question around. If God isn't the one who determines who's saved, why are you praying? I mean, think about it. When you pray for your family members and friends who are non-Christians with the hope that they'll become believers. And by the way, some of you are here today because we prayed for you. If you're hearing the gospel for the first time, because we've been praying for you for months. But what types of things would you say when you're in your prayers? You'd say something like this, Lord, open the eyes of my sister so she understands that she's lost. Soften her heart so she doesn't shut me down the moment I mention Jesus. Open her to respond to the gospel message. Now when you're praying like that, aren't you assuming that God can answer that prayer? Aren't you assuming that it's in his power to do just what you've asked? To give her a new heart and put a new spirit within her? To remove her heart of stone and give her a heart of flesh? And when God answers that prayer, do you go back to your sister and say, I just want to thank you for finally believing? No, you thank God because you know it's God who opened her heart and changed it so that she would believe the message. Well, that's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what happened to Lydia that day next to the river. And that's what happened to you if you're a Christian. And that's what we're praying will happen to you if you're not. You see, all people are born into darkness, blinded to the truth. Paul wrote later to the uh, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, to 6, he said this, And even if our gospel, meaning the message of Jesus dying on the cross, even if it's veiled, so people are blind, they don't see it, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, meaning the Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they won't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves is his bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness like in creation, is the one who has shined in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sinners only come to faith after God shines into their heart and gives them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And one of the things that happens after that occurs, 
is that new heart is a heart of gratitude. That brings us to our last point. A grateful convert. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? I like the way my, my daughter used to sing it. Zacchaeus was a free little mint and a free little mint was he. Now, it's supposed to be a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He wasn't very tall. He evidently had short guy syndrome. But uh, one way or another, he couldn't see over the crowds. And so what he did was, knowing Jesus was coming by, he ran ahead and he climbed up a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus was passing by. And as Jesus was walking by, he looks up at Zacchaeus. He said, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down because I have to stay at your house today. And says so he hurried down and he received him gladly. When the crowd saw this, they began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. In other words, they resented the fact that Jesus was going to be kind to a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said, Lord, behold, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to pay him back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation's come to your house, because you too are a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. You know, if you were in Disney World as a child, and your parents said, okay, you can go off, make sure you meet us at this certain point, and the time came and you weren't there, it might be because you got so involved in the sights of Disney World that you didn't even actually realize that you were lost. That's all of America. There is so much that our country offers by way of entertainment, sports, fun, pursuing wealth, that nobody realizes that they're actually lost and they need to be found. Well, this wealthy woman, Lydia, had a newly changed heart and now she had an open hand, indeed an open house, just like Zacchaeus. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Not only did she believe, but her children and her servants believed as well. Her household became the, the beachhead for Operation Europe, and most likely her home was the first meeting place for the first church on the continent of Europe. You know, when I went to Northwestern College to be educated to be a pastor, they put up a new building when I was there. It was called the Totino Fine Arts Center. Now, when you hear the name Totino, what do you think of? Pizza, you're right. It was Rose Totino and her husband, James Totino, who started a pizzeria down in Minneapolis, which later became part of the Totino Pizza Company. Well, James died and Rose donated a lot of money to Northwestern. She became a patron of the college. Think of another famous patron, Selena Hastings. She was the Countess of Huntington. She was a wealthy woman from an aristocratic... Arist aristocratic family. Uh, after her husband died, she spent all kinds of money on evangelistic causes. She put up a hospital and she funded the building of 64 chapels. The countess financed a number of missionaries and was a friend of George uh, uh, Whitfield's and John Wesley and the hymn writer Isaac Watts. The British historian Horace Waple described her as the patriarchess of the Methodists. She was a pivotal figure in uh, evangelical revival in England. You know, during her lifetime, she gave away 100,000 pounds, which would be the equivalent today of $200 million. Someone asked her one time what she was most thankful for. And she said, I am most thankful for the letter M. You're most thankful for the letter M? Yes, I'm thankful for the letter M. I said, well, why's that? I said, well, because Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, said this, For consider your calling, he's writing to Christians, telling them to reflect on their life when God called them to be a follower of Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the 
worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul said, not many were of noble birth. But if there was no M, he would have said, any are of noble birth. She said, the thing I'm most, most thankful for is the letter M. Evidently, Lydia, like Rose Totino and the Countess of Huntington, knew how to store up treasure in heaven. Well, what truths do we take out of this very short story? I think there's three megatruths that come out of them. Here's the first thing. Great works of God often start with very small beginnings. Over the centuries, the pagan night of Europe would give way to the dawn of Christianity with hundreds and thousands, millions of people embracing the true faith. And even those who did not genuinely become Christians still benefited from the common grace blessings that came from living in a society influenced by Christianity. I mean, Hinduism produces a society like India. Islam produces a society like Iran or Saudi Arabia. Neither of those could have produced a society like the United States or England. But all of it started on the banks of a river in one city, in Philippi. Now, I have to say this, it is so easy to get discouraged in your life and your ministry, wondering whether you're making any difference at all. You know, the priests in the day of Zechariah, they wept when they saw the newly rebuilt temple because they remembered the old one and the new one was not nearly as grand. But God said to them, do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Second thing I have to say, though, is that God can and will use people from any and every background to further his plan. A former persecutor of the church, a doctor named Luke, a young man named Timothy, another named Silas, a rich businesswoman added to this later on will be a jailer and his family. God can use you whether you were raised in a godly home. Some of you were raised in really messed up homes. That doesn't have to shape the rest of your life. Even if you became a believer late in life, God can bring back the years that were lost, in a sense. And then he could begin to use you in powerful ways. Well, the third thing, and the last thing that we need to say is that the spiritual battle that we are in will continue until Jesus returns. You see, D-Day was not the end of the war, but it was certainly a key turning point, and it was really the beginning of the end. For us today, the battle rages on, but victory is guaranteed. Because someday the flag of Christ is going to wave over every capital in this world. The question I have to ask as we finish up is this. Whose side are you going to be on? you be on the side of God or on the side of the world? Those who embrace Christianity and spread Christianity or those who refuse it and oppose it? There is no neutral ground. You have to decide. You have to decide. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we do need grace and mercy. Uh, for some who are going to be listening to this over the internet, this is all new. For others, we've heard this time and time again. But it is the truth that you have sent your Son into the world to pay for the sins of those who would turn from their sins and turn to you in faith. And all the heartaches that we've had in the past can be redeemed and used for your good and for our, our well-being. So, Father, we pray and ask that you would work in our hearts and for people who listen to the, this message, that they might respond in faith and come to know Jesus Christ. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to close by singing a song together. 586. 586.